You are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. Welcome to the show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, Hobbits, and getting sick eating way too many space macarons. This is season four, episode eight, The Mandalorian. Is this the way? I'm Adam Thomas, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Carrie Combs. Hello, Carrie. Hey, Adam. I have a guessing game for you today. (laughs) Does it have to do with the squeaking in the background? Can you guess what creature I'm talking about? He's small. He's in the unlikely protection of a slightly unwilling participant whose time is spent preventing him from putting dangerous things in his mouth and eating them. Can you guess what creature I'm talking about? You're either talking about Grogu in The Mandalorian or Mm. the dog ear dog sitting for that's right friends it applies to both but specifically i'd like to apologize in advance for the puppy sounds coming from the background our dear friend is out of town and needed a little help with her pup and he's here so there's not just twice the amount of normal dog noise but probably infinite amounts of dog noise coming from my end Mm -hmm. and his his name is kermit and kermit is green and grogu is green so it all works and he is very cute, but he also likes to eat things that he's not supposed to, much like Grogu from The Mandalorian. So as I was revisiting this wonderful series that we're now finally allowed to talk about, I felt a lot of compassion and solidarity with Pedro Pascal's depiction of The Mandalorian. You know, he's he's harassed, but he also loves this creature that he has found himself caring for. <laughs> so we're going to talk about The Mandalorian today. Uh, which is really exciting because it's been out for a couple of years, but we have this embargo where we, we wait a few months after something airs before we talk about it so that we can avoid spoilers. But if you haven't seen The Mandalorian and you did, and you want to, you need to not listen to this because we are going to spoil the end. Our scripture quote today comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And our nerd quotation for today is from Mayfield, the former imperial After Mando takes off his helmet to gain access to Gideon's location, he says, you did what you had to do. I never saw your face. I know Mandalorians come up in lots of other properties, but at least for someone like me, a semi-casual Star Wars fan, and then I've seen all the movies several times, but not all the shows, not Clone Wars, not Rebels. This was the first real introduction to Mandalorians and this kind of bizarre tenet of this code, this is the way that includes not taking off one's helmet. And that's kind of one of the tensions that builds. He does not take off his helmet even to save his own life. Uh, the only way he takes off his helmet with in the presence of the droid IG-11 is when he's reminded that He's a droid. He's not a living creature. He will not take it off to flirt with the lovely widow on that nice bucolic planet. This is interesting because I have seen every cartoon there is, and there are lots of Mandalorians in 
the Clone Wars and in Rebels. And so when this whole thing about not taking the helmet off becomes this big deal, I'm watching very quizzically because Mandalorians (laughs) throughout the history of Star Wars take their masks, their helmets off all the time. Yeah, news so, to you. So, so for f- somebody watching The Mandalorian without any of the the the, the baggage of, of his history of, of Star Wars would have just taken it as face value that this is part of their creed. But somebody mm-hmm. who has seen all of the cartoons and everything would know that it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. And of course, that comes that's in the second season that gets explored some more. But uh, yeah, so tell me a little bit more about your first impressions uh, based on that first season, maybe with like the armorer and, and the, the culvert where they're staying. It seemed very intense, specifically his conversation with the armorer, where he's basically interrogated about following this code this way. You know, has have you taken off your helmet? Has another living being taken off your helmet or seen your face? That that seems to be central to what they talk about. And that was all new to me. And it just seemed like it was I guess I wasn't surprised later on when it turned out to be a sect, a cult, an offshoot of mainstream society, just because it seems so extreme mm-hmm. and fundamentalist to a point. Yeah, like, like this is this sort of central tenet of the children of the watch is what we learned that they're called later on. We learned that. Right. And it places so much emphasis on the Beskar armor, which they are known for. So it's, it's, it's a racing in some ways, but it's also a binding thing. And the fact that he's not originally from Mandalore, he is a foundling coming from another planet. I think it's wearing the, the armor that's been given to him as he's part of the, taken into this culture is both unifying and erasing. And hmm. I thought that was an interesting tension to explore, especially as he adopts this little creature that we later learn is called Grogu into his own care becomes his own foundling mm-hmm. and just wondering what identity there is available for him as he moves forward and grows up slightly on this weird journey of side quests and monster of the week that they seem to be on together. Yeah. And and what Carrie and I are interested in exploring on this episode of the podcast is Din's movement from that fundamentalist mm-hmm. in the child, in the children of the watch, that cult that he doesn't even realize he's a part of uh and, and his opening up and expanding his worldview and expanding what, what it means to be a Mandalorian because of his relationship with the child. Like, like something about the child and, his, and, and the quest that he has chosen to take on um, breaks down that fundamentalism because it adds a layer of complexity Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a complexity born out of love and compassion and so many things that fundamentalism tends to resist because at its root, any type of fundamentalism is always very reductive. Mm-hmm. Fundamentalism is something that strips away any type of questioning because once you start questioning a fundamentalism, it breaks down very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what the Mandalorian is on is this quest uh, both external to deliver the child to his people, but there's also an internal quest of of his um, moving away from from that uh, from the fundamentalism. Right, and when he's in season one and he's eyes on the prize, very focused, a bounty hunter out there doing his job, it doesn't seem like he questions much of anything at all, and it is the first thing that complexifies. That's a word. Complexifies. I like that. <laughs> The first thing that complicates this very sort of simple and straightforward (laughs) worldview is opening up that 
egg and seeing the child. That's the beginning of it. And upon meeting more Mandalorians later on who are not from Children of the Watch, who are not from that cult, will add, like you said, add these layers of complexity and have him start questioning what is truly the way. Is it more complicated than just not taking off our helmets or behaving a certain way? Mm. Is there a sort of a root mm-hmm. value that they can follow and have that be what guides his actions? I hadn't thought about that before in, in that the first thing that he start he he actually breaks away from the bounty hunter code before mm-hmm. he starts breaking away from the the children of the watch because he doesn't just shoot Grogu or or capture him and, and take him back. He does give him to Warner Herzog, whatever his character's name is. Yeah, whatever. And, and then Warner goes Herzog. back and, and, yeah, and then takes him and then takes him back because he, he some kind of this conscience is saying this is wrong. This is wrong. He breaks sort of that bounty hunter code first, and then the Mandalorian, uh, the cult part of the Mandalorian code falls away later on. It's in mm. chapter 11 where we finally meet non-children of the watch Mandalorians. And as somebody who is, A, an enormous Battlestar Galactic fan, uh-huh. uh, and B, <laughs> a big fan of, of the cartoons, uh, Star Wars cartoons, yeah. when Katie Sackhoff takes off her helmet and you see it's Bo-Katan Kryze, I was just like, yeah, and I knew it was her first because uh-huh. she's got uh-huh. the same armor. So she and her two pals come and they save Mando and the child on the ship with all of the Quarren. And then Bo-Katan takes off her helmet. Like it's Ooh, no uh, big deal. Like it's no big yeah. deal. She's just like, whatever. And Mando's like, what the heck are you doing? And and he he specifically says, where did you get that armor? Like right. he just assumes immediately that they're not Mandalorians and that they must have stolen this armor because they mm-hmm. took their helmets off. And she responds by almost immediately understanding who he is as a result of that, right? He's so shocked that she's taking off her helmet. She's like, oh, you're one of those. Yeah, and he says, she says, this armor's been in my family for three generations. And he says, you do not cover your face. You are not a Mandalorian. That's the fundamentalism, right? He immediately recognizes that and says, well, you must not be a Mandalorian because you you did this thing that you're not supposed to do. And as we've heard, one of the refrains of the Mandalorian is him saying, this is the way. And so when she says, you know, this cult's goal is to reestablish the ancient way, he pushes back on that and says, there is only one way, the way of the Mandalore. And yet he's meeting real life, flesh and blood Mandalorians who do not follow the same way he had been learning, that he had grown up, that he follows even to the point of death. And so the question begins to form, well, what what is the way of the Mandalore if it's not removing one's hell or not removing one's helmet. This initial encounter with Bo-Katan starts to worm its way into Din's mind mm-hmm. uh, because then they get together to take down the Gazanti uh, freighter. And she basically says to him, um, I'm going to help you. I, I, I mm-hmm. know a Jedi. And, and if you help me do this, then I will tell you where to bring the child. And then she asks him to do something more. And he says, wait, this wasn't the deal. And Bo looks at him, flashes him a little smile and says, this is the way. But then at the end of the episode, um, she says, your bravery will not be forgotten. This is the way. So she says it in a couple of different contexts. Yeah. The first time it feels more mocking or sarcastic. Like she's kind of used his honorableness, his willingness to keep his word as a means to her own end, her way, which is to retake Mandalore at any cost, it seems, at least in this episode. And she will kind of mock 
his his adherence to his way in order to get her own way. And then at the end, after he has kind of proven himself to her in some ways, and she has gotten what she wants and she passes on the knowledge on where to find this Jedi, she says it much more sincerely. And they have that moment of agreement of this is the way. Yeah, this, this is the way that I your quest is important. You have a foundling uh, that you need to bring back to his people. And thankfully, Bo-Katan knows Ahsoka Tano. They work together in the Clone Wars. They know each other. The thing that I, I really appreciated about the Ahsoka episode is how she recognizes what Grogo means to Din. Mm-hmm. She recognizes that he really is Grogu's father figure, that he is unwilling to give up Grogu. He doesn't want, and Grogu doesn't want to, doesn't want to leave him either. And right. she's a little worried about that attachment. And you realize at that point that some sometime along the way, the journey that they've taken together, it has moved from an assignment to retake this asset, moving to sort of an un, an uneasy, like you're in my care while like cargo, while I get you to the right place, to being friends as much as you can be friends with a baby, um, to being parent and child. It has become so much more than the assignment and so much more than just cargo to be delivered, that there is a true and loving relationship between the two. There is a real affection on the part of this strong, silent guy who mm-hmm. for most of the series, you don't even see his face. It's hard to kind of read his emotions, but you get a lot of them in this, in this scene, in this um, affirmation of the relationship they have. Pedro Pascal does a lot with his voice because mm-hmm. you don't see his face. He conveys a lot of emotion with his voice because it's flat for a lot of a lot of the time, but every once in a while there'll be a, mm-hmm. a crack in it or a break in it and you recognize that there's a there is an intense feeling happening. So we we see that in Mando's relationship with Grogu is where the the breakdown of of his ideology is happening. Mm-hmm. It's all happening around the fact that he loves this child and he will do anything for Grogu, as evidenced by all of the crazy scrapes he gets himself into, especially after Grogu gets captured by the Dark Troopers. Mm-hmm. In the penultimate episode of season two, where we where we bring back that character Mayfield, uh, Mando actually takes off his armor for this episode because he needs to go undercover. Mm-hmm. Uh, he still has the helmet on, so you still can't see his face, but he's that's one more step away from the creed and that easily becomes something for mayfield who's kind of a i don't know what the right word is he's laissez faire he doesn't seem to believe in a lot except for maybe his own protection in this universe and he says something like seems to me like your rules start to change when you get desperate i mean look at you you said you couldn't take your helmet off and now you got a stormtrooper one on so what's the rule is it that you can't take off your mando helmet or you can't show your face. And so he starts to poke at Din saying like, your your rules change when you start to get desperate, um, which I think is speaks very truly. When we, when we have very strict rules and they're under attack, they do shift to get convenient. That cognitive dissonance of trying to keep to the thing that is so important while also trying to serve a different purpose can cause a lot of loopholes and uh, at sort of mental gymnastics in order to accomplish something. And that's precisely what, you know, Mando does in this episode. And he eventually does fully take off the mask, mm-hmm. the stormtrooper mask in order to get his face scanned and has a whole conversation with no helmet on. Yeah. And he looks really shell shocked during that mm-hmm. whole conversation. Doesn't know what to do. Can you finish the quote from Mayfield that you started earlier? Cause the rest oh, of it's sure. really, really great. 
All right. So he continues on. He says, cause there's a difference. Um, is it that you can't take off your helmet or you can't show your face? Look, I'm just saying we're all the same. Everyone, everybody's got their lines. They don't cross until things get messy. As far as I'm concerned, if you can make it through your day and still sleep at night, you're doing better than most. So what Mayfield is really needling Mando about is his embrace of complexity over fundamentalism that, that the Mandalorian has recognized that there are more important things than this creed that he grew up with around his armor. Uh, and the most important thing to him right now is not his armor, it's Grogu. There, there's the impulse, the, uh, the compulsion of love is, is making him do things that he wouldn't have done before. Um, and it's the, and it's his love for Grogu that becomes the thing that he shapes his world around as opposed to that more fundamentalist, uh, ideology that he had before. And I think Mayfield's the perfect person to be kind of helping him form those thoughts because he's not a guy who sticks to any kind of creed or rule aside from the rule of staying alive. And as he says, if you can make it through your day and still sleep at night, you're doing better than most. He's the one who points out that on the, you know, either it's new Republic or it's the empire, either way, these people on this planet just feel like they've been occupied when it comes down to it. They're kind of all the same. So he gets a lot of crud for having served the empire. And yet he doesn't think the new Republic's doing much better. He provides a good alternative and questioning partner, albeit a very talkative one while Mando just sits there quietly <laughs> and drives and, and focuses. The conversation that they have with that creepy Imperial officer, um, <sighs> Valen Hess, is really interesting to me. First, it's it's acted really well and shot really well. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that gets me is that what we're seeing from the Imperial's conversation is the Imperial fundamentalism. Mm-hmm. The imperial ideology, which which is, do what the emperor says, don't ask questions, don't don't change any orders, just do what the emperor says, even if it doesn't make sense, even if it mm-hmm. seems to go against what the rest of your career has been, even if it means killing thousands of your own troops, of your yeah, of your which own is exactly side. what Operation Cinder did. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see it in a couple of other stories. It's part of the video game uh, Battlefront Two. Uh, you actually you actually play through parts of Operation Cinder as Ida that in Battlefront oh. 2 uh, in the story mode. Uh, so we see it in a couple of places. Um, but Mayfield, who had been Ooh. an Imperial soldier of some sort um, mm-hmm. and, and lived and survived Operation Cinder, sees this guy. And, and, and while the Mandalorian has taken off his mask and has embraced this complexity, we see that this Imperial officer has not, and is still holding on to that party line that we're doing exactly what the emperor told us to do, even though we're several years past the emperor to dying or mm-hmm. whatever happened with the rise of Skywalker. I don't need to talk about that. <laughs> and so there's an interesting kind of dichotomy here where we see the Imperial ideology and mm-hmm. fundamentalism on full display while we're seeing the breakdown of Din's, earlier ideology because of what he has to do. He, he says, um, we can't abort. If I don't get those coordinates, I'll lose the kid forever. Give mm-hmm. me the data stick. In other words, Mayfield can't go into the room because he thinks the guy's going to recognize him. Right. And so Mando does it and, and takes off the helmet in order for the terminal to scan his face. Right. So there's Hess who is still sticking to the party line. There's Mando who is breaking down slowly that complex and embracing complexity and moving to a new 
way of being a new way of love of Grogu. And then there's Mayfield in the middle kind of showing the impact of that imperial fundamentalism, what it has had on him, which is to say all these, all of his fellow soldiers are dead. And he's one of the, you know, one of the minority to escape alive. But I think at the end of the episode, he and Mando come to a new understanding and a sort of meet as equals in a lot of ways. Yeah. And then at the very end of the episode, we get the the bit with uh, Moff Gideon and Mando delivers his threat. And we recognize what we had seen in the Ahsoka episode when Mando says that Grogu means more to me than you will ever know. Mm. We see Mando now saying it out loud that the child mm. is the most important thing in his life. And then we move on to the old, the final episode in season two, chapter 16, The Rescue, which is chock full of wonderful action sequences. The Bo-Katan and the Darksaber plotline come back. There's a reuniting of all these kind of characters coming together to, to accomplish two things, essentially. Bo-Katan needs to take on Moff Gideon and get the Darksaber, and Mando needs to get the child. And they all do that. Yay. Except that <laughs> Mando ends up with the dark saber. Um, and that's an interesting moment because it shows the line, the, the line that Bo-Katan won't cross that she does have an ideology mm. and that she is embracing a particular uh, piece of the Mandalorian way, which is you need to win the dark saber in order to possess it. It can't be right. handed to you. It can't be given to you. You need to win it in some sort of combat because Amanda's like, I yield here. It's yours. Yeah. Done. Uh, I don't care about this lightsaber at all. But as Moff Gideon says, the dark saber doesn't have power. The story does. Mm -hmm. The what, how it gets there is more important than the thing itself. Uh, so hopefully in season three we will explore that a little bit more because we won't have Grogu. <laughs> I I don't know how you can't. I just <laughs> um, so this so, episode yeah. ends with Luke coming. The the Jedi has come to take. Grogu from the Mandalorian, his mission has been completed. He's passing on this precious cargo that he has been shepherding. He is handing over custody to the right people, to the Jedi who will help hone and train these prodigious gifts that this child has. And yet there's more to be done than just handing him over and saying, you know, bye-bye. Yeah. And, and Luke says that he needs Mando's permission Mm -hmm. And the way he wants that his permission. wants his permission and the way that he's going to give that permission is by finally removing his helmet and Grogu reaches up and touches, uh, uh, touches his face. It is so I, emotional. I mean, I get emotional watching that mm -hmm. scene. It's so beautifully done. Um, and we, it's the culmination of two seasons worth of conversation about, what it meant to be a Mandalorian. And we realize that as he comes to the end of this particular part of his quest, he has really become who he always meant to be, uh, which was somebody, a person of integrity, a person who was going to complete what he starts, mm -hmm. but also a person who cares about this other being just as he was cared for in whatever way the people who found him cared for him. And in this moment, when Din takes off his helmet and you know, essentially looks his son face to face, uh, has skin to skin contact as Grogu reaches out and touches like his jaw. He's letting him go. And that I think is another parenting moment of it's not good for Grogu to remain with him anymore. It is the right thing for him to be passed into the hands of those who can hone his power um, 
as Luke says, he will not be safe until he masters his abilities. He's being hunted and he needs to learn to protect himself, but also to harness this incredible power he has. So then in this moment of, of expressing his love is also letting him go and pushing him on and giving him, like I said, giving him permission to walk away from him. Mm. And he says, all right, pal, it's time to go. Don't be afraid. I love that he ends with don't be afraid. It, it's got that resonance of the, of scripture mm-hmm. of so much, uh, so many times we hear, do not be afraid in the Bible. And I love in, in this moment that he's not, he's not just taking off his helmet for Grogu, but he leaves it off. He, he gives Luke full on eye contact. They give each other kind of a knowing nod. And then one of the final tableaus we get on the bridge shows, you know, Bo-Katan and, and all the other fighters, but also Mando's helmet on the floor next to him for the moment forgotten as he looks with loving eyes full of tears as Grogu walks away or is carried away. Sorry, I forget that he's like a foot tall. <laughs> <laughs> he's carried away by Luke um, with tears in his eyes. Yeah, it's a really beautiful ending. I, I was so happy with the way that the the show ends in that with that particular emotional climax. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 interesting for an action oriented show to have such an emotional climax, That's and they, they do point. it so they do it so well because he's been on that internal journey this whole time. And in true Mandalorian fashion, there's not a lot of words spoken. You know, what you said, all right, pal, it's time to go. Don't be afraid. That's really it. There's not an outpouring of words. There's not, you know, Grigor doesn't speak basic. He just coos and kind of whines. Um, But you don't need any of that. They're able to behold one another face to face, touch one another and be present in that moment of affirmation of their relationship, but also of moving beyond and saying goodbye. And it is so beautiful. And there's an echo in it of the end of Return of the Jedi, uh, mm, where yeah. where when Darth Vader is dying, he asks Luke to take off his mask. But so you'll he, die. Yeah, so that I can look at you with my own eyes. And he's already dying, so mm-hmm. he, the, his last wish is to see Luke with his act with his actual eyes, and not through the mask, not through whatever viewfinder he has. He wants to use Anakin's eyes. Mm-hmm. to see his son. Um, and and it, there's that beautiful connection that they make in those last moments of Darth Vader's life, um, which I see uh, being mm-hmm. played with a little bit here uh, in a similar fashion. And that also reminds me of that scene from the Bible in of the transfiguration on the mountaintop where the veil, the veil is lifted from Jesus so that people can be, so that his you know followers who have come up there with him are able to behold him in all of his power and glory and love that somehow seeing with your own eyes is important that that removing that extra layer either you know sort of spiritually in the case of Jesus or literally in the case of Anakin and Luke and Grogu and Din that that is affirming that that means something important that that is a more full way of knowing one another than seeing one another through these veils through these mediating, through this, these masks. So tell me, helmets. Yeah. (laughs) Tell me, why did we pick the great commandment as our scripture quotation? Maybe we can finish up our discussion with that. Absolutely. Because we initially were going to go with the transfiguration, right? This whole, Mm -hmm. you know, beholding one another. Um, But when we were thinking about what, what this move from fundamentalism for Din really means, we were both reminded of those scenes where Jesus is being interrogated and he basically takes the whole of, 
of the prophets and the law and boils them down to the very simple, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These commandments are simple to say, but they have all of life is contained in those words in a complex way, because we have to figure out how do we live out loving our neighbors. There's no formula. There's no rule book. There is only this way that Jesus names that you have to figure out and test and learn and keep coming back to and keep refining the way that you live based on your evolving understanding of what loving your neighbor as yourself and what loving God looks like. Mm -hmm. That it's not just like, here's a rule book, a very big, thick rule book, and you need to follow it and you'll be all set. It requires reflection and prayer and constant refinement. And that's, that's the path that we aim to follow. Yeah. And Jesus says in John's gospel, I am the way, the truth and the life. So he, he's kind of a Mandalorian, (laughs) right? This is the way I am the way he says. And the word way in Greek is literally the word road. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not a special word. It's not a special word. It's just the word road. And so what he's saying is this is the path to walk. And as you walk it, you will, you will learn more things about yourself and more things about the world. And that will increase your ability to hold on to complexity and mm-hmm. to look at complexity through the lenses of love and compassion. And when you do that, you are following down, you are, we are walking down the way of Jesus even more, even in walking closer behind him as he creates the way ahead of us. This time on the podcast for Nerdy Christians on our Ask Us Anything segment, we're asking ourselves another question. That's right. Another question this time from our friend of the podcast, Adam Thomas, co-host extraordinaire. Oh yeah. Adam asks, we've both used nerd canon many times as sermon illustrations. What is a memorable time that you did this? Hmm. Mm. So, so many, I mean, to the yeah. point of, I have to, um, I have to limit the number of times I talk about star Wars in a year so that I don't do it too much. <laughs> you had that one very uh, great sermon, right? Where you included Harry Potter brave. Was it, there was like four references, I can't remember, but yeah. all jam cram jammed into one. <laughs> it was like a, a plethora of references, but what's, what's the best, best or most memorable one that the you've done? The most memorable one for me. Um, happened on Pentecost, so the, the the feast that we celebrate the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. back in 2016. And the reason it was memorable is because I was writing the sermon, and I wrote out the phrase something like, <laughs> "The Holy Spirit <laughs> surrounds Sorry. us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together." And that's when I realized I was quoting Obi Wan Kenobi. <laughs> great prophet that he is (laughs) so so at that point i was like huh i'm Mm. just gonna lean into it and i wrote a whole sermon um using uh help with help from obi-wan kenobi Mm -hmm. and and things that he says in star wars including you know the force surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together uh and that was my whole my whole sermon and i just remember just going this is good this is oh 
wait a second. Yeah, this is, this is not words of Jesus here. <laughs> quoting Star Wars. And it, it worked pretty well. Did, did you name that you were getting that framing work from Obi-Wan Kenobi? 100%, yep. Okay, good. Yeah, because I would imagine someone listening who has that memorized as much as you do might be like, wait a second. Is this no, I talked Bible? about him throughout the sermon. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the danger of being a fan, right? I'm a fan of the Bible. I'm also a fan of a lot of nerd canon and media. And all of these quotes and these concepts get chucked into my head and kind of mixed around. And sometimes I can't exactly remember where they come from. Yeah. And then it's dangerous because I'll be like, wait a second, that's not from the Bible. That's from Harry Potter. <laughs> um, I, I love that story from yours. So thank you. Um, on trend of Star Wars, I had a Star Wars sermon, which is, I was, the, this is at my former church. It was the retirement of our Christian ed director. It was like World Youth Sunday or something. And the passage was from mm, Timothy, maybe one of the things that talks about teachers. And I was brand new to my church and running out of time. And luckily for me, we had recorded the podcast on mentors that oh, Friday. <laughs> so I basically just preached <laughs> our season one, episode, what, four or six of our, of our podcast about mentors. And like, we are, they are what we grow. Wait. Yeah. They are what we grow we are, beyond. We are what they grow beyond. Yeah, right. And I, you know, I, I was able to honor this wonderful long serving Christian ed director, sort of name the youth connection, uh, do a bit about, you know, what teachers are all thanks to the podcast for nerdy Christians. So fantastic. Yeah. So, so you actually use the, cause we joked when we first created this podcast that one of the reasons we were doing the podcast is so that we could talk about all the things we can't talk about in sermons. Cause it's too complicated. It would yep. take too long to explain no, something in, this in a case, sermon. I just was like, I'm just going to preach the podcast <laughs> to save me some time. I already fantastic. put all the research in, you know? Yeah, that's like, good. Gotta I use, like it. God can work through everything, hopefully right. through this yeah. pod. So indeed, thanks indeed. for asking the question, friend yeah. of the podcast and co-host extraordinaire, Adam Thomas. <laughs> Thank you, other co-host extraordinaire, Carrie Combs. We'll be right back with uh, our very last day with Harry Potter. This time on the podcast, we are reading the final three chapters plus the epilogue of Harry Potter 7. Here's a quick recap. Chapter 34, The Forest Again. The truth is now out. Harry knows now that his life has always been measured by how long it would take him to destroy the Horcruxes. He sits out to the forest, weighted down by this terrible knowledge. On his way, he meets Neville and instructs him to kill Nagini in case himself, Ron, or Hermione get, um, busy. As he enters the forest, he invokes the power of the Resurrection Stone, bringing forth ghostly apparitions of his father, mother, Sirius, and Lupin, who protect him as he walks. Reaching Voldemort's lair, he presents himself before the Dark Lord, wand undrawn, and prepares for death in a flash of green light. Chapter 35, King's Cross. Harry wakes up in a strange, formless place, which gradually coalesces into a cleaner, quieter King's Cross station with two notable additions, a flayed-skinned crying child left abandoned under a train seat, and Albus Dumbledore. It seems this is neither death nor life, but an in-between place. And we get the final Dumbledore download. The piece of soul that latched onto Harry connected him with Voldemort, doubled when Voldemort took Harry's blood and Lily's sacrifice to rebuild his body. When Harry presented himself freely and willingly to die, the piece of Voldemort's soul was destroyed, but Harry was protected by Lily's sacrifice kept alive in Voldemort, he has a choice to return 
or to board a train for on. Chapter 36, The Flaw in the Plan. Harry awakens on the forest floor and feigns death. The conquering army marches to Hogwarts with the supposedly dead Harry carried by Hagrid. Voldemort announces his victory, though he does not go uncontested. Neville Longbottom lops off the head of Nagini with the miraculously appeared sword of Gryffindor, and Harry slips away unnoticed. Yet another battle breaks out, and as Voldemort turns his wand on Mrs. Weasley, Harry protects her and reveals himself. Harry and Voldemort begin to tensely circle, and Harry lays out the situation for Tom. His horcruxes are gone. Snape was loyal to Dumbledore through his love for Lily, and the Elder Wand passes by conquering, not by death, which means Harry is the master of the Elder Wand. One final Expelliarmus collides with Voldemort's Avada Kedavra, and the spell rebounds, killing Voldemort, ending the war, and ushering in a new era for wizard kind. Epilogue, 19 years later. At platform nine and three quarters, Harry and Ginny drop two of their children off for school. First year, Albus Severus, terrified of being in Slytherin, and second year, James. After meeting up with Ron, Hermione, and their two children, Harry takes Albus aside. Named for two former headmasters of Hogwarts, one of whom was a Slytherin, Albus can ultimately choose which house he is in, just like Harry did, as the next generation boards the train and glides away. Harry knows that all is well. Ah, We did it! Sort of. We have a few more minutes yeah, we, to talk about just, it. <laughs> no, we can just stop there. That's all you need to know. Uh, the the name flaw in the plan is my favorite name of a chapter in all seven Harry Potter books. I love say, it. Say more about that. Well, because you know the names of the chapters at the beginning of the book. You mm-hmm. know, it, so but it it doesn't give away the end, but you mm. know that something is going to happen, mm-hmm. and. You and you're not really sure what plan it is or whose flaw it is, mm-hmm. but as you get closer to it and then you start reading the chapter, you recognize that the plan is Voldemort's Horcrux plan about staying alive forever, mm-hmm. and the flaw is that <laughs> he'd made Harry a Horcrux by accident, and uh, on a larger level, the the plan is sort of world domination through fear and terror. And the flaw is, yeah, but there's a whole bunch of people who are resisting you because they see a different world and a world that is built on relationships and love and um, coming together, uh, not because they're afraid of something, but because they want to protect something. Right. And that's wonderfully articulated um, by Dumbledore in this weird in-between time between life and death as some some of my favorite prose in all of these books. Dumbledore says, and Voldemort's knowledge remained woefully incomplete, Harry. That which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend. Of house elves and children's tales, of love, loyalty, and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing, nothing. That they all have a power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, is a truth he has never grasped. And when he's talking about Lily's sacrifice being taken into Voldemort, yet another flaw in his great plan of taking Harry's blood, thinking to strengthen him. Mm. He says if he had known about the precise and terrible power of that sacrifice, he would not perhaps have dared to touch your blood. But then if he had been able to understand, he could not be Lord Voldemort and might never have murdered at all. Mm. Yeah, that, that that last little bit is what's so important. If he could understand the concept of sacrifice, of loving something so much that you'd be willing to lay down your life for it, then how could he be this creature that he is? Right. How could he be Lord Voldemort and not just Tom Riddle, sort of normal human being and wizard? 
Yeah. But because he murders, he becomes Lord Voldemort, that that's the persona he forges because of his un, his unwillingness or inability to understand love, loyalty, innocence, sacrifice, house elves and children's tales. And a lot of that comes out of his own trauma. We talked about this in our last episode that we learn in book six of, of just the pretty, you know, horrible situation that he's been put in, you know, his mother dies, gives him up for adoption and then dies, you know, um, and he first doesn't feel at home until he's at Hogwarts. And then he continues to make the wrong choice. He always makes the wrong choice. And he and Harry are so similar in that, you know, both being orphans and so forth. But Harry keeps making the choice of friendship and the choice of sacrifice. And Voldemort always makes the choice of being in charge first, you know, being in power and wanting to have uh, peons and, and wanting to manipulate people uh, in order to, to grow in power. And, and so they, they really are two sides of that coin where one is always making the choice that leads to isolation and separation and domination. And the other one is always making choices that leads to lead, lead towards community and, and, uh, and love and, and pain. And even before they learn their wizards that they are, they have this power. They, they both know they have some kind of weirdness about them. Voldemort uses that power, like you said, to dominate, to manipulate, to torture others. Harry uses it to escape, to avoid ridicule, um, to, yeah, eventually he'll use it to blow up his aunt by accident. But for the most part, when he's a child, he uses it in the ultimate defense that, you know, to jump up on the school roofs to avoid Dudley and his gang. And that kind of becomes... Harry's MO throughout the rest of the books. And we'll see to the very end, he does not lift a wand to kill, but to defend. Um, he will use the invisibility cloak to hide others. He will use the potion of Felix Felicius to protect those he loves, um, not to attack. And I was reminded of that, that scene in the second book when Lockhart's memory charm rebounds from Ron's crummy wand and, and causes him to lose his own memory. And Dumbledore afterwards says like, oh, impaled by your own sword, Gil Gilderoy. And in the end, Voldemort is impaled by his own sword. His killing curse rebounds off of Harry's Expelliarmus, killing himself. And because Harry was the master of the Elder Wand, um, his power was ultimately greater and he's able to get the wand and none of the spells that Voldemort is casting at that point in the book are doing any harm because everybody that Harry loves is protected with Lily's the same type of protection that Lily gave Harry. This is this is Jesus saying, "Greater love has no one mm -hmm. than than the one who will die, who laid laid down his life for his friends." Um, that quote doesn't actually get used in Harry Potter, but that's really what's happening near near the end. We have that Christological moment with Harry. Um, walking into the forest and, and so forth. And yeah, he does go in the battle of, in that battle in the great hall, he cast a huge a shield charm, mm -hmm. you know, that, that separates people apart. And, and he never lifts a finger to, to attack. He's always, as you said, he's always defending. And his compassion is what saves his life. So many times his compassion is empathy. So it, it saves him from Wormtail. His ability to leave Draco unharmed to rescue him from the room of requirement is what, allows him to regain access back to Hogwarts by when Narcissa goes to check to see if he's alive. And she lies because mm, he's able to say, yes, yeah. your son's alive. Like let's go into the castle. And I love that, that capacity to empathy. Another 
beautiful line that I think of, of basically on his his own kind of walk to Golgotha in a way when he's going to the forest from Dumbledore's office, sorry, from the headmaster's office. Um, he says he was home. Hogwarts was the first and best home he had known. He and Voldemort and Snape, the abandoned boys, had all found home there. Even as Harry's walking the way of his own cross to death, he has this capacity for empathy to see the similarities between him and Voldemort and Snape, and yet acknowledging that he's going to make different choices than Tom Riddle has made. And then we have that beautiful scene in the forest with his family when he turns the resurrection stone and and then gets surrounded by Lily and James and Lupin and Sirius. Um, And he he says that um, it didn't matter that he was bringing them back for he was about to join them. He was not really fetching them. They were fetching him. And in that moment, I was reminded of the stories of people who have, who, when they're on their deathbeds, see loved ones kind of coming to gather them and they'll, and they'll speak it. And the the people who are attending their death will, will hear them calling out for their, you know, their mother or their lost husband or their grandparents um, thinking about that. The ones we love draw near to us in different moments, either in moments of our own peril, you know, uh, as we're on the verge of death or what we believe in the Holy Eucharist, that that communion of saints is always surrounding us and the veil between life and death gets very thin sometimes. I love that the four of them act as a Patronus Mm -hmm. as he's walking through the forest that the Dementors can't touch him because he's got these people that are his family uh, right, right next to him. And then on his way back out of the forest, the fact that he's alive burns so bright in his heart that, that, that there's no way that a Dementor could ever touch him, which is partially, I think the author keeping away like questions of what there are still Dementors. Why isn't he, you know, but I love the way that, that she describes it, that, that he has come, that he's alive again. And the fact of his life, the fact that he's breathing is so present in a way that it had never been present before. It wasn't until he faced his death that he felt fully alive um, that he gets there. Um, And I also, one of my favorite details of all of these books is very, is a very small detail, but the fact that Hagrid carries Harry oh. at, but after both times that Voldemort yeah. hits him with the killing curse. You're right. Cause he does it in book one when he brings him to the Dursleys mm-hmm. and then he does it again in book seven, when he carries him back to the castle. It's a lovely inclusion that, which is a biblical term for when basically bookending mm-hmm. a story uh, with the same detail. Mm-hmm. And we see it in Matthew's gospel when Jesus's name gets translated uh, Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And at the very end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, and I will be with you always until the end of the ages. So it's Got an inclusion. It. The, the, the gospel of Matthew begins and ends with the same thought. And Harry Potter begins and ends with Hagrid holding Harry after being hit with a killing curse. Another one of his father figures um, holding him tight and not, you know, and protecting him. Even, mm-hmm. even, in, even when Hagrid thinks he's dead. Right. That when he's lifted up from the forest floor, he says like the, the hands that lifted him up were exceedingly gentle. And you, you think about Hagrid as this kind of silly, almost older brother figure in a lot of ways. And yet he is cradling him. Um, and I love that in that, in repeating that action of Hagrid lifting up Harry, you're able to reflect almost subconsciously on how much he has grown and changed how much has happened between that 
fateful night on Halloween of 1981 and this battle of Hogwarts when he has, you know, willingly been subjected to the killing curse. Everything has changed and yet a lot of things are still the same. It's actually almost like a pieta moment, yeah. you know, yeah, of, of holding, holding the morning. dead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. When Dumbledore is like, where do you think we are? And Harry says, King's Cross Station. That Dumbledore is kind of tickled by that. I imagine with any other person, it would take a different form. But for Harry, King's Cross has always been a place of moving from one import, you know, from one stage to another. It is a transitory place. It's where he first meets the person he'll eventually marry, just like J.K. Rowling's parents met at a train station. Ah. It's um, this place of of great happenings and excitement and possibilities. And so that he would be able to board a train and go on yeah. is I think very appropriate. And Dumbledore gives Harry the option to go on or mm-hmm. to go back. And he says, do not pity the dead, Harry, pity the living. And above all, pity those who live without love. By returning, you may ensure that fewer souls are maimed, fewer families are torn apart. If that seems to you a worthy goal, then we say goodbye for the present. So he frames Harry going back in the terms of, of service. Uh, you could go and continue to serve in life, ensuring that fewer souls are maimed. In other words, if you go back, we could end. You could end this war, and there will be less killing because that's we know that a soul gets maimed when it when the person murders. Fewer families torn apart. So if if you think if you think you've done enough, then I'll agree with you, and you can go on. But if you think that you can continue to help, then then return, and we'll we will meet again. We will meet again. And I love that it's ultimately his choice to continue on to keep fighting or to stay. And Dumbledore will not judge him either way. But he, of course, then provides him with the precise information he needs to make the choice that we know Harry will make, (laughs) which is to go back. Like, of course, if there's more lives to be saved, he will go back. And, oh, that scene in the Great Hall is so magnificent when they are tensely circling and he's laying it all out there and Voldemort being Voldemort cannot resist the opportunity to hear everything, but then also say like, Oh, but you're wrong. I have it all figured out. It's spectacular. And I I think the movie really ruined it. So let's not remember that. (laughs) They did, they did less um, monologuing and more just sort of firing curses at each other. We just flew around the castle when in doubt, just fly around the castle in a Harry Potter movie. That'll okay, be okay, fine. Okay, all okay. right, all right. <laughs> Let's not end on a negative note. <laughs> Let's end with Neville Longbottom, who gets to pull the sword of Gryffindor and have his hero moment. And it makes me so happy that he gets to he gets to get rid of a Horcrux. So let's just quickly name our Horcrux destroyers. We have Harry destroying the diary. Uh, the diary. We have. Dumbledore destroying the ring. After putting it on like a fool. Yeah. We have uh, Ron destroying the locket. We mm-hmm. have Hermione destroying the cup. Um, the cursed fiend fire the destroying fire the diadem. The, the, the so diadem. Thanks, Crab. Crab? Okay. Crab? Okay. <laughs> Destroyer of Horcruxes. Um, and then, Crab? Yeah, and then Voldemort destroys one by accident with with Harry and then of course mm. Neville gets the the final word and Neville being we talked a lot about choice throughout the Harry Potter mm. books Neville being the other child that Voldemort could have chosen to be his rival but he chose Harry he, he, there were two boys that were born at the end of July this that year that could have fit the bill mm-hmm. and Harry is the one marked by his enemy marked as equal yeah 
Um, but Neville in the end, it shows incredible bravery, just like, mm-hmm. just like at the end of book one, when he stands up to his friends at the end of book seven, he, he is shown to be this wonderful leader of the resistance in Hog- in Hogwarts. And then moving, limping forward when all seems lost and crying out in defiance and saying, no, we will not join you. I will not join you. I know I'm a pure blood, but that's not important right now. And once again, the sort of Gif- Gryffindor being presented by to the to a worthy Gryffindor in an hour of need, he finds that sword and he takes takes action, which allows for the whole thing, you know, Voldemort's last line of defense to be severed. And then the theme of choice closes during the epilogue when Harry bends down and talks to his son mm. about choosing his house. And we recognize that, you know, we've said before, you know, it's our choices that make us who we are. Doesn't Dumbledore say that early on? Yeah, not yeah. our abilities. Not our abilities. Um, and that and ultimately ends up being what these what these books are about. What we choose makes us who we are. And we can talk about that as, as a definition of destiny, that destiny mm. is not something that is going to happen to us. It is, it is something that will happen because of the path that we've chosen. Right. Got to. You don't got to do anything, as Dumbledore will say to Harry about about the pro- the prophecy. You you do it because you choose to. You pursue Voldemort. You live the way you live because of who you are. Excellent. All right, we did it. Harry Potter. Hey, Harry Potter. We in talked the about bag. all seven books. Three of them very briefly, but that's okay. But thoroughly ish. <laughs> and there's so many more times. I'm sure this is not the last time we'll talk about Harry no. Potter, but this is the last time we'll talk about it as part of our book club. So yeah. we've got to come up with a new book club we for haven't next done, season. We haven't done an episode about Harry Potter because we've been talking about it every episode. <laughs> so at some point uh, in the future, if if we you know have more seasons, if we mm-hmm. get renewed you know, by, by our, ourselves, by ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> then, then I'm sure we'll, we'll have uh cause we, we keep talking about wanting to talk about um, house elves and, and, yeah. and Hermione and stuff. And we never do. Uh, so we'll get there. Um, but in the meantime, we do have one more episode coming up in season four of the podcast for nerdy Christians. We're going to uh, do something we've done um, trivia, mm-hmm. uh, fun trivia showdowns the last couple of seasons, but this time we're, we're going to, ease back a little bit um be a little bit more take just take our ease and uh mostly because i'm bad at making up trivia (laughs) questions and talk through some some of our some lists like our favorites favorites this and that's and we're gonna uh, make some listicles for you to click on and get us ad revenue oh wait my least favorite words includes listicles listicles there you go yeah it'll be it'll be a fun exploration um kind of going through some some random categories that i plan on making up and and hopefully you will as well fantastic well bring us home carrie thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for nerdy christians please give us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice so others can discover us too you can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media facebook.com slash nerdy christians and on twitter at nerdy christians where i occasionally tweet bad memes you can find Adam on Twitter at RevAdamThomas or on his website, AdamThomas.net. Vampire Mist is his newest book, and it's a story about a group of friends who solve problems using their highly specialized skills of magic, martial arts, music, and basic cartography. And as always, you can find both of us right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians, where faith meets fandom. May God, whose love and power were revealed in the face of Jesus on the mountaintop, Bless and keep you always. 
May God guide your actions as you do what you need to do. May God grant you wisdom and strength to follow the true way of love. Amen.